Thank you so much. The worship is wonderful with the music and the hymns we sing, and it's good to see so many here today, especially for the sermon I'm going to share with you. Uh, we are actually finishing up our study in the book of Second Thessalonians in our church, and we're going to be in chapter 3 today here, and uh, I'm going to be talking about the theology of work. I don't remember, honestly, if I shared any of that with you the last time I was here. I know I talked about deacons, but I'm not sure what where I was the time before that. So you may get a little bit of repeat, but not much. And really what I'm going to be talking about today is the sin of idleness, the sin of idleness. And we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 through 15. I'm going to share a little story with you before we get started looking at the Word of God together. Uh, Wednesday night, we, we normally have a worship service. Uh, at 6 o'clock, we have some prayer time committed to specific prayer for different items and then uh, at seven o'clock we have a worship service and as we normally do we started off with some scripture reading and prayer and as soon as I opened the service with prayer we had an earthquake that was a new one uh, I don't think I've ever had a earthquake happen during a service especially during an open opening prayer so I'm literally in the middle of the prayer opening the service for worship and uh, this thing's going on and the building is shaking. We'd already had one earlier that day and then the previous Saturday before that we had one at 1.14 a.m. that woke me up out of my sleep and uh, if you followed the news at all you've noticed that in Elgin, South Carolina they've had over 40 earthquakes in the last few months since Christmas and uh, seismologists say here in South Carolina that that's not abnormal South Carolina is a uh, busy state whenever it comes to earthquakes. Uh, that was a new one to me. Whenever I uh, moved up here, I thought, well, I'm away from hurricanes mostly because we lived in Florida. That's where I grew up, and so it was always a threat. Earthqu uh, hurricanes were always a threat. No real concern about tornadoes or earthquakes. Well, I moved to South Carolina thinking, okay, I've kind of pretty much got away from the hurricane threat. Then Hugo came. All right, and we were there when that happened. And then I was thinking, you know, we're not out in Kansas or anything like that. We're not going to get tornadoes here. And we've had four very close calls to our house. In fact, whenever I built an addition on at my house, I was this close to not doing this, but my wife just said, what about our children? And I built a storm shelter. Uh, so, and thankfully, I mean, the Lord has, um, we've been down in that thing a couple of times. We call it the Iranian bunker. Or any kind of bombing from Iran and uh, but we've had to use it a couple of times so the last real storm threat that came through when there was a number of tornadoes specifically down in Allendale and that area Barnwell and we had one really really close to us and so so I'm thinking okay now we got hurricanes we got tornadoes and I thought well you know I'm living in South Carolina I'm not out in Los Angeles I'm not gonna have to worry about earthquakes so once um, one day I was sitting in my office, which is in my house. I have a large aquarium in my office, 65 gallons. I love to fish, and so since I can't catch any, I can look at them in my aquarium. And so I'm sitting in there studying one day, and I've never experienced an earthquake at that time. And the water starts sloshing back and forth in my aquarium, literally about to spill out of the sides of it. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And that was the one, I believe it was last year, in Edgefield, South Carolina, was the 4.1. And so um, I'm not sure exactly what is going on with that. Now, depending on your eschatology, if this matters to you based upon your eschatology, 
I mean, Jesus did say in the latter days there would be earthquakes in various places, and I thought Elgin, South Carolina is definitely qualifying for various, right? About the middle of nowhere. And so, uh, anyway, so that was a very interesting Wednesday night. I, I think it was kind of a, an eye-opener to all of us in the middle of our worship service. I was asked this morning whenever we came to church, uh, are you going to shake things up again? And I said, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> nothing to do with that at all. But anyway, we've been going through our study in uh, 2 Thessalonians and have really loved this book. I mean, the, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, he closes out the last few verses of this book dealing with a problem in the church. And the problem is idleness. Or some might title it laziness. But the point is, is that they were, at least some of them, were not working. And there was the potential idea that that has come from a number of places. Some believe it came from their, their Greek past because the Greek gods, uh, it was taught at least that the Greek gods punished people by causing them to work. And so some of the Christians were coming out of their Greek mythology and were refusing to subscribe to the Greek idea and say, we're not going to subscribe to the Greek mythology of work as a punishment, so we're just not going to work. Others were saying that uh, it perhaps was a reason was because they were being affected by the Jews and specifically the religious Pharisees who were saying that, you know, the better thing to do with your life is to study the Bible and pray and, you know, make sure you fast and do all of those things so that the more spiritual thing to do would be to do those things instead of work. Work was one of the mundane things of this world you just had to do, but if you didn't have to and you could spend your time doing studying scripture and learning the word of God and praying and fasting, then that would be better. I believe really the primary reason why there was a lack of work going on in the, the Thessalonian church was because of their eschatology. And what I mean by that is this, is that some of them have been taught incorrectly that the day of the Lord had already come. That's chapter 2. So Paul's correcting that. If they were literally believing that the day of the Lord had already come, you could easily see the reason why some of them were just like, well, why worry about working? I mean, the return of the Lord is imminent, so why in the world give yourself over to any kind of laborious effort? Why build houses? Why try to make a living? Why not just wait for the return of Christ? That's probably more likely what was going on in this church. Needless to say, the biggest issue is, is that the number of them there had to be corrected. And the way the, the way the Apostle Paul corrects these Christians is astonishing. Because it gives to you the sense of the severity of the sin that he was addressing here. This is not a small issue at all. And so he addresses it in a very profound way. So let me just uh, read the text in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 and following. The Word of God says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly or is idle and not according to the tradition which we have, he has received from us. For you yourselves know that you ought to follow us, for we were not idle among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you ought to follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some of you who walk among you in an idle way or a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such 
We command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey the word of this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. And do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. One of the most pervasive trends in the American culture, both inside and outside the church, is the growing desire to be idle. In fact, you could say that idleness has become an idol in the American culture. Much of what we do at work is for the goal of getting to the weekend so that we can sit down and do nothing. And the goal more and more is, is that we make a paycheck so that we can have more time off. According to one article that I read this past week, workers across the country are spending far too much time doing nothing. In fact, it's costing some companies $100 billion annually. A growing idleness problem that I've seen in the last few years, the escalation of it has been how much the average family spends watching TV. One article said the thing that Americans most often do with their free time is not cooking or exercising or hiking or any other activity. No, Americans love to watch TV. That's the default position of most Americans. They come home after the job, have a brief meal, sit down for the next four hours, and plop on the couch to watch TV. In 1949 and 1950, the American household averaged four hours and 35 minutes of TV per family. According to the recent research, it now tells us that that has escalated to an eight-hour and 18-minute-a-day involvement in television among households. Now, that's got to be understood that it's the entire household that we're talking about, the eight hours and 18 minutes, not just one individual person. How they get there is because they found out that over the last few years, especially with the lower prices of flat-screen TVs, that more and more families have more than one TV in their house. It used to be that most families may have one, but now you can go in some homes, they will have a TV in each bedroom, they'll have one in the kitchen, and they will even have one in the bathroom to make sure they don't miss any part of their favorite show. It is stated by the research that more families have more TVs, and the amount now is that most families have 2.75 TVs in their house. I don't know exactly what a .75 TV looks like, but nevertheless, that's what they tell us. And the idea is that not only does the mother have her show to watch and the father have his show to watch, but the family's children, they have their own TV that they can watch whatever they want. Years ago, whenever I was in construction more, that was a very common thing, that we would see TVs literally everywhere. We installed kitchens for homes and some of the higher-end homes out on Lake Murray and there was always going to be a TV hanging from underneath the cabinetry so that you could watch TV. They tell us that, on an average, the individual person in the home watches 4 hours and 35 minutes. That averages out to about 29 hours a week, which is just slightly less than a full-time work schedule. And then if you were to add all of it up for the entire month, that means one person can spend as much as 142 hours a month watching TV. That's an awful lot of time spent literally doing nothing. 
The rise recently has been as many as five more hours per week per family, and it seems to be escalating, especially with the advent of smart technology, smaller screens, iPads, and other kinds of technology. As a result, in one article that I read this week entitled Couch Potato Nation, it said that the research reports that 75% of American teens are not getting any exercise anymore. And I responded with a profound duh, right? Neil Postman wrote a book many years ago in the early 80s that I've read a number of times. It's entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. The picture on the front of the cover of the book has a family sitting on the couch in front of the TV with no heads. And the idea is that we were moving away from a typographic culture to a telegraphic culture where people could sit for hours in front of a television and never think at all. Whenever you read a book, you're engaging back and forth in your mind and you're thinking about the words and you're analyzing the thought. Whenever you're in front of the TV, you can passively sit there for hours and never engage at all. He went on to say, and this is probably now three generations, but he says at that time, two generations. He says, we are now well into the second generation of children for whom television has been their first and most accessible teacher and for many their most reliable companion and friend. And I would add to that, nowadays, especially as a parent, you need to be extraordinarily cautious about what your child is available to watch. If you don't want them to be indoctrinated with some of the most godless things in this culture. So idleness is a serious problem, especially in our culture. Coupled with the decline of the Protestant work ethic, Many within the church are literally living in the sin of idleness. Coming to church on a regular basis perhaps, taking the Lord's Supper, not even thinking that they have sinned by being so idle. The word idle comes from the Greek word argos, and the word argos has a number of definitions. The first one is to be without doing anything. The other one is to be unwilling to work or even lazy or unproductive and also useless and worthless. It's used in Matthew 20 verse 3 of the parable in the vineyard whenever the owner of the vineyard went out to find workers in his field and he would find men standing on the sides of the roads idle, it says, doing nothing. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 13, it's used of the young widows who are being called on and warned about being idle. In Titus chapter 1, verse 12, it talks about the Cretans. They didn't have a good reputation because they were called liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And the word for lazy is the word for idle. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about rest, all right? I'm not talking about that you and I are just to be constantly busy, never having a moment where we can sit down and rest and get relaxed a moment to rejuvenate ourselves so we can do what we've been called to do. And I'm not talking about the occasional recreation where your family goes out on a vacation. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is the intentional and deliberate desire to be idle and to be unproductive, to do nothing. It's the fruit of laziness. It's the idea that, you know, I'm going to do as little as possible to get by. I'm going to do as little as possible to accomplish my goal, which is primarily to be idle. And it can be active or passive. In other words, you can be actively planning that. And there's a lot of people in our culture, especially, that plan that. They take jobs because it has fewer hours so that they can be idle at the home more. 
And then you can also be passive, and that simply means that you can slowly, in an incremental fashion, fall into a pattern of being idle in your life and becoming unproductive and careless about the time that God has allotted to you in your life. Some of you here today, even in this church, are sitting here, and you're going to be ashamed on Judgment Day whenever you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the most important thing you can tell him is what your favorite TV program was or video game that you played endless hours of, wasting your life. You're going to have few accomplishments for the kingdom of God, and the majority of your life is going to be spent sleeping and being idle. You and I are called on by the word of God to redeem the time. That means to purchase it back, to grab hold of it. Don't let it slip by. As we even talked about earlier in the foyer, how quickly time is passing away. I mean, I don't know about you, but Sunday to Sunday now feels like it comes every few hours to me. Like the weeks are rapidly moving. I'm almost dedicated to the point now that I'm going to buy a fake Christmas tree. I'm going to decorate it, stick it out in my garage and just Put it up very quickly every year because it comes about so quick. Things are going rapidly and we need to be careful that we don't waste the time that God has given to us. John Piper wrote a very excellent book entitled Don't Waste Your Life. A little small booklet but packed with truth. He says in that book, you get one pass at life, that's all. One pass, only one. And the only lasting measure of your life is Jesus Christ, what you do with him and for him. And he went on to say in that same book, desire that your life count for something great. Long for your life to have eternal significance. Want this, he says. In other words, go after it. He says, don't coast through life with no passion. Man, I'll tell you the truth. I have to say this. I see a lot of Christians coasting, just coasting, not actively pursuing any productivity for the kingdom of God, or as far as that goes, their own work life and their own family life. Scripture warns of idleness, like in Ecclesiastes 10, 18. It says, because of laziness, the building decays, and through the idleness of the hands, the house leaks. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Talking about practical, because of your lazy hands, we have a leak in our roof. The word translated idle in this text comes from a Hebrew word, sheplut. And the word sheplut actually has the idea of lowering the hands. Instead of actively working with your hands, you lower and relax your hands. Proverbs 18.9 says, He who is slothful is his work, his brother to him who is a great destroyer. And then Proverbs 6.6, 6, we know this one well, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which have no captain, overseer, or ruler, yet provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food for the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? How, how long will you not rise from your sleep? Oh, a little sleep and a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. 
And that is so sad and so true, isn't it? In 1 Timothy, a passage I referred to earlier is a very sobering warning to young widows. In 1 Timothy 5, 13, it says, And besides, they learn to be idle. Talking about the young widows. Because they're not married and because they don't have anything to do, and perhaps based on the text, they don't even have children at this time, they have become idle with no point in life. It says in verse 13, And besides this, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, and give no opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully. Then comes the sobering words of verse 15. For some have already turned aside after Satan. Now, if that was a verse by itself, you might think, well, they were led led away with false doctrine, or perhaps maybe some false teacher came in and, you know, captivated them and led them away or something horrendous but really the context is they became idle and that opened the door for the devil and they were led astray to satan and if you think being idle is not a problem remember the old proverb we learned years ago idle hands are a devil's workshop and they are If you're busy, as he would call on the widows to do, to make sure you marry and have children and manage your house, you don't have time for anything else. You don't have time for following after and pursuing sin, and you definitely don't have time to be a busybody, as the text says. And we're living in a culture right now that has literally lost its mooring. And we're adrift in a vast ocean of meaningless speculations of atheistic men. There's no meaning or purpose in what many do today, All they do is go to their jobs and work the hours that they work for the purpose of accumulating more things so that they can satisfy their own pleasures and desires. The transcendent has been replaced and abandoned for a utilitarian mindset. Whatever I can do is the idea to make my life more comfortable. Whatever I can do to get whatever I want to make myself have pleasure. Whatever I can do to um, advance myself. In this meaningless, worthless rock flying through dark space, just occupied by a bunch of meaningless clumps of cells, then I'm going to do that. I don't know if you realize that, but that is the outworking of the Darwinian evolutionary theory, and that's what we're seeing today. It's applying to our work ethic. People really simply do not care. Go through the average drive through and see what happens. It's very clear that our society is decaying in this area, and it's decaying tremendously. A society without a proper view of God is a society doomed to failure. Doomed to failure. In our culture, this just 60 years ago, I mean, clearly there was some sense of a Judeo-Christian ethic, and there was some sense that they may have not necessarily believed in Jesus, but they did believe in God. Some were even proud to say, in God we trust. And a lot of the work ethic of that time was increased and made better simply because they recognized that there was a higher power, even though some of the guys that did the kind of work would call the man upstairs, they still had an understanding that what they were doing was more than just meaningless here. In a two-volume set entitled Democracy in America, 
written in 1835 and 1840, Alexi de Torvelli, rather, he wrote the words regarding the capitalist societies, and he said this, that he worried that free capitalist societies might develop so great a taste for physical gratification that the citizens would be carried away and lose all self-restraint. Those who avidly sought for personal gain could lose sight of the close connection which exists between private fortune of each of them and the prosperity of all. What he's basically saying is, is that you get consumed with materialism, so much so that you have no concern for your brother or your sister, it's all about you. That was over 200 years ago, more. He was prophesying literally what we're in today. He was seeing exactly where we were headed, and he was worried about that. He went on to say that if you do this, it will ultimately undermine both the democracy and the prosperity. He said the genius of America in the early 19th century was the ability to pursue pursue productive industry without descending into materialism. You see, behind Americans, he said, behind America's balancing act of both of these was the ability to lay hold of civic virtues that celebrated not merely hard work, but also thrift and integrity and self-reliance and modesty, words you just don't hear anymore at all. One of the things that caught my attention, though, in what he wrote was this, is that these virtues, he said, grew out of a pervasiveness of religion. A pervasiveness of religion. He said the first of America's political institutions was imparting morality. Now, our culture is the first and foremost political institution is to promote immorality and godlessness and no virtue and no meaning, no purpose whatsoever. We celebrate Independence Day on July 4th. And really, more than ever, what's happened in America is no longer is it that we're independent from a king and a monarchy, but we're independent from God. And if things don't turn quickly we're going to find ourselves in a very serious place. Sadly, uh, there is not a lot we can do about the work ethic of the lost person. I mean, we can talk about it. uh, We can try to encourage it. But ultimately, their God is themselves and whatever they can get out of this world they're in. So they're going to pursue that. But what we can do is change the way the world sees work by the Christian work ethic. In other words, you and I should be working in such a way that whenever people see what we do in our workplace, that we bring glory to God and they can say, there must be a God, look at how that guy works. Instead, often what happens even with Christians is is that they're also known, just like the world, of being late all the time, not doing what they're supposed to do with diligence, not being careful to make sure that they don't steal time from their employer. I've seen it happen too many times. The sad reality is is that you and I, as a church, have a great, great responsibility to make sure the world knows who God is, even through our work. I don't know if you've thought about your work that way, but that's exactly the way the Bible presents it. I mean, have you thought about your job like this before? Have you considered that the job that you do that is actually mundane 
can reach to the heavens? Have you thought about the fact that the job that you have that may be simple and seems like it's of little consequence can display the very glory of God? Have you thought about the fact that your job that may not pay that well, but yet it is by God's providence what he has given to you to supply for your needs? Or perhaps maybe you feel like you're stuck doing a job you really don't like, but you need to remind yourself that this job you have has been ordained by God. Anytime we go whining and complaining about the job that we have that God has providentially ordained for us, what we're basically doing is ascending up into the throne room of God and telling God the Father, you do not know what you're doing. If you were doing what is right, you would have given me the higher paying, easier job. I mean, how do you do what God has called you to do in the years of work on this planet and do it in a right way unless you have an eternal perspective? The little bit of time that we have here means that the smallest of details of your job that you do is important. If it's flipping a hamburger at a fast food joint or if it's working on a computer program, or if it's painting a building or helping your children learn the alphabet, or if you're teaching men to be better leaders, whatever it is, the list could go absolutely infinite. The point is, it doesn't matter how important you think the job is. The thing is, is that whatever job you have, God has ordained it for you. And it's important to understand that. And I would also add what verse 13 says in the text we're studying. Don't grow weary in doing good. That could be translated, don't grow weary in doing what is right. And that, by the way, has been often taken out of context. We hear that all the time. Like whenever you're really kind of wore out with ministry and you're tired of everybody complaining at the church, don't grow weary in doing good. Keep at it, pastor. Keep doing it. But really... The point of this passage is, in your secular work life, don't grow weary in doing what is right in your job that God has given to you. By the way, I'd like you to just turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 6, in Ephesians chapter 6, and look at what God expects of our work. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5 through 9, here's a very, very powerful and pointed text given by the Apostle Paul regarding work, employees and employers. Here we have the slave-master relationship. In Ephesians 6, 5, the word bondservants in my translation is actually a mistranslation because it is the word doulos, which is slave. The Legacy Standard Version that the Master Seminary has produced accurately translates the word slave. And whenever he uses the word doulos here, it doesn't mean a little bit of a slave or a part-time slave. This is a full-time slave that is owned by his master. And he is commanded to obey his master in everything. You bring that home to us today. We don't have that same kind of arrangement. We can come and go, if you will. We can take a job or leave a job. But when we're there, according to the Bible, we are given responsibility to obey our employers. Let me read the text and point out a couple of things. Ephesians 6, 5 says, bondservants or slaves 
Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and here it is, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. In other words, you serve and obey and follow and do what your employee tells you, your employer tells you to do as if you were doing it for Jesus Christ with all of your heart. Verse 6 says, not with eye service. That means you don't obey your employer when he's looking at you only. Whenever he turns away, you decide to become idle. He says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. In other words, you are to obey your employer as you would as a slave of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord. Three times in this text, he tells you to obey your employer as to Christ, as a slave of Christ, and as to the Lord. If that doesn't press home the severity of what you and I are responsible to do, then it would be very difficult for me to impress upon you how important this is. It even goes on and says in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. The Lord knows. He sees what you're doing. He sees what honor you're giving to your employee or employer, rather. And so you're going to be honored by the Lord. The Lord will take care of you, whether you're a slave or free. He says in verse 9, just so we don't leave out the masters or the employers, he says, And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your master, your own master, also is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. In other words, you're going to be judged. So straighten up. And don't treat your employees in a wrong way. Honor the Lord with all that you do regarding that. And I would like to add, even in this congregation, that we talk a little bit about the retired people. Because in our culture, we have the ability, unlike most cultures throughout the, the history of the world, to be able to retire. I mean, you can work 40 or 50 years, or sometimes in some cases even 20 years, and you can retire with a pension or an IRA, and you can kind of kick back, relax, and go play golf or go fish or have a garden or do whatever you want for the rest of your 20 or 30 years you have left. And that's a blessing. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, if you can have the ability to be able to work a job and get enough money to live the rest of your life with no worries, absolutely, go for it. But that doesn't mean that we have the right, by God's word, to retire from him. It doesn't mean that we have the right to retire from what God has called us to do. Just because you leave a, quote, as we would call it, a secular job, doesn't mean that you have lost your job with God. <laughs> In fact, now you have more time to serve the Lord, right? That just means you don't have to be occupied with something that's going to take 40 or 50 or 60 hours of your week. Now you can devote your whole time to the Lord. I have heard it repeatedly over and over again from our seniors in churches tell me, well, I'm done with that. I serve my time. Let the young people do that now. Or they'll tell me that, you know, I've uh, done all that I can and now I'm retired, so I'm just going to come and listen. Well, that's actually as foreign to the scripture as you possibly can get. The Bible does not teach us that there's a retirement for us as believers, and there is no such thing as you removing yourself from the work of the ministry as a believer just because you've now stepped down from your secular job. What it does mean is that you and I have the responsibility to serve the body of Christ. That's what it means. 
In fact, it should be that the senior community of any local assembly should be one of the greatest resources of any church body. But in fact, it is not. And it's not necessarily their fault. It's because we haven't taught this. We haven't communicated the necessity of the use of the seniors in our church because they have such a wealth of information both in wisdom and practical advice that they should be giving to the young men and the young women of our church. Instead, what we have is both the young men and the young women floundering, trying to figure it out and go through the same problems and make the same mistakes that the older generation did. But the Bible does talk much about this. In fact, there's a number of ways it does. Like in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31, it says, Give no regard to mediums or familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Then it says in verse 32, You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, for I am the Lord. You say, what in the world? What connection is that? What he's basically saying is don't seek wisdom from demons and mediums and spirits. Rather, go to the old man who's in your church. Go to the man that has wisdom, who's lived the life that he's been given by God, who's proven a, to be a man who fears God. Get wisdom from him. Get advice from him. So the, the implication is, is that the older people of our church should be available for that and be involved in that. In Job 12, 12, it says, Wisdom is with the aged man, and with length of days comes understanding. I've said it before, if I could go back even 30 years knowing what I know now, I would not make near the mistakes that I have this time. And I've also said, physically speaking, if I could go back knowing what I know now, I could do a whole lot more physically. Now I know what to do, but I can't do it physically. And the point is, as we grow in our years, we gain wisdom in life especially if you have a godly person who has walked with Christ all these years, they should have wealths of information to give to the younger generation. Psalm 71, 17 says, O God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also I am old and gray-headed. O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to everyone who is to come. That old fellow understood what his purpose was. He wanted to stay around long enough to be able to communicate the wisdom that he had learned in his life, walking with God to the younger generation. Also in Titus, there's some very, very specific instruction given to the older men and the older women of the church. This is something that's very rarely practiced in churches today. But Titus 2 one and following says, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine or healthy doctrine, healthy teaching. So Paul says to Titus, this is what you're to teach your church, and this is how your church is supposed to act. This is what is healthy for the church. He says, the older men are to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and patience. And the question would be, why? Why, obviously, is because first it honors Christ. Secondly, because they're able to instruct and be examples to the younger men. And then it specifically says that the older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, 
that they, that is the older women, admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. In other words, older men and older women in the church have a responsibility to teach the younger generation. And the older women of the church have a direct responsibility to teach the younger women how to be mothers, how to be wives, and how to run their homes. But what happens today, the younger women have none of the older women to go to to find out any of that information, so they have to go to Paul Washer. He's the only one talking about it. And a few others, because the older women aren't doing it. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the church simply hasn't taught it, and it's not been implemented at all. And we have years and years of older people that could have been tremendous important assets to the younger people of our churches and have not been involved in that at all. So just because you're retired doesn't mean it's over with. In fact, your responsibility gets much more important to the church because now you have a responsibility to teach the younger generation all that you know when you're walk with Christ. They become a discipler of the younger generation. And let me add this also, not to be idle. Not to be idle. Give it your absolute best all the way to the end. Run your race and run it all the way to the end. Laziness and idleness, you may not know this, but you should by now, is a sin. It is a sin. To be a sluggard is a total disregard of the purpose and the plan of God for your life. He has not ordained and created you to lay around. (laughs) He hasn't. He's given you a purpose and a reason for your existence. That's what makes Christianity so wonderful. We have reason. We have purpose. We have meaning. The world walks around and has no clue. We do know. We can go to work and do what some would consider mundane and meaningless and useless, and we can do it with joy to the Lord, knowing that God has ordained and provided this for me, and I can put that stamp on that box repeatedly for a hundred times a day and do it to the glory of God. Right? Well, there's a number of reasons why Paul gives the incentives for this. He's calling on them not to be lazy, not to be idle, and he gives six incentives, and I'm going to go through these quickly. The first one is fellowship, and the fellowship is so very important. I can't stress this enough. In verse 6, look at it with me, chapter 3, verse 6. Here's the first incentive as to the reason why you should not be idle as a Christian. Because of the fellowship of believers. Verse 6, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. That's the Greek word for being idle. And not according to the tradition which... He received from us. In other words, here is a profound statement. He is not saying in this text, although he has in other places, that you withdraw from this brother because he is a defiant, immoral, godless person. He didn't say that. He says you are not to have fellowship with this brother because he's idle. He's unwilling to work. When have you ever seen that done? right? So that should be enough to encourage anybody to get busy and to do what God's called them to do. But what is most amazing is how much importance that Paul places on the fellowship of believers. I mean, think about it this way. He's saying that one of the main motivators for a person to get back to work and not to be idle is so that they can participate in the fellowship of believers. That's what he's saying. 
In other words, it's detrimental to your spiritual health to be separated from the body of Christ. And, you know, we went through these last two years, right, where, what is it now, two and a half years, where people were talking about that church is optional. It's optional. You can live stream church. Church is essential. And it's essential for more than one reason. It's essential for your spiritual health and for you to be separated from the body of Christ as it meets together and worships together is going to cause you to have spiritual problems. That's a fact. I was told by someone just a couple of weeks ago that they, they like live stream church. And I said, God doesn't. He doesn't like it. And that's not what he intended the church to be. He intended the church to come together on the Lord's day and to worship together as a body. And even some Christians have opted to believe that because we went through the pandemic, that it's okay to do that and to stay home. And it's not. It is not. We are past the nonsense. It's time to come back together and to worship in God's house. You are actually deliberately causing yourself spiritual harm whenever you stay away from the fellowship of believers. And this is the point of it. If this man does not straighten up, repent, and get back to work, he is going to find himself separated from the body of Christ. And he's going to have spiritual harm done to him as a result of that. That's the point of it. It is an act of discipline. The second point that Paul brings as an incentive is fellowship. He says you should do this because I set the example of what you should do. He could have easily taken an income from the church at Thessalonica and had the right to do so as a pastor. He was preaching, he was teaching, he was discipling. He had a lot on his plate already. And instead of him taking a living from the church so that he could do that freely, he worked, it says. It even says in the text in verse 8 that he did so working night and day, laboring and toiling. And the word toiling is to work to the point of exhaustion. And I said this to our church, that one of the most difficult positions to be in is to be a bivocational pastor. It's tough because you've got to work another job, then you've got to work the church, and the church is not a part-time job. It's not. There's no way for it to be part-time. It just doesn't work that way. Yet Paul was doing this for this reason. He wanted to set, as it says in verse 9, he says, I wanted to make ourselves an example. I wanted to show you what you are to do. If he were to come into that church and say, you know what, I'm just going to, take a salary from you guys and I'm going to do the work of the ministry here and let you pay me so that I can do that, it would have done harm to that church and the reason why is because they had a problem of a group of people who were already lazy and idle and he did not want to facilitate that or enable that or to encourage that. So he did the opposite of it. The word, for example, in this text is the word we get our word mimic from. Mimeomai is the Greek word. It's the present tense verb means that they are to continually follow him as an example, to mimic his, his work. The third actual incentive was not only fellowship, fellowship, but food. This is very practical, food. Here's one for us today. We need to learn in our culture, if a man does not work, he shall not eat. He shall not eat. And there are hundreds of people who have learned how to work the system if you ever go up on the expressway you come off to an off-ramp or someone like that and you'll find people standing there with a little sign saying we'll work for food they don't want to work for food they want you to do the easy thing give them five bucks and move on that's what they want to do 
They found out recently that some of the people who do that make an average of $15 an hour. We came off one of the uh, off-ramps in Columbia, and there was a young woman standing there saying the same thing, we'll work for food, lost job, and I'm thinking there are hundreds of jobs everywhere asking for people to come to work. They will pay you to show up and fill out an application. And she had her iPhone and her new tennis shoes. And I thought, okay, obviously this is not a real need. And the problem is, is what's happened is, is that there's been a lot of people who have learned the, to uh, use the system to their advantage and to, cap, to actually take advantage of good-hearted people who are willing to help and want to help and instead of them working and doing what is responsible, it's easier for them to get someone to give them something. Shame is already gone. They don't care about any of that. They just want the dollar and they want it easy. And the Bible makes it clear here, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. We've recently had a situation in our church where we've had more people show up to our church asking for money. And we tell them, look, if you'll come to our service and come into our church service and worship with us today, which our goal is to give them the gospel, we'll go with you somewhere and get you a meal. They don't do it. They don't want to do it. And our whole culture is like that now. That's what's happening. And sadly, even in the church, we find that to be the case in some situations. People need to understand that, look, if you're going to, if you're going to be responsible and do what God's called you to do, the Bible says if you don't work, then you shouldn't eat. And again, we're not talking about people who have serious disabilities or problems with their health and they can't work. We're not talking about that. And we're not talking about people who are genuinely poor and have had devastating things occur in their life that have caused them to fall into the situation and they need help. Or maybe some brother or sister who's lost their job because of some situation and they really just need some help to get back up on their feet, but they're willing to do what's necessary to do so. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the person who is intentionally idle and unwilling to labor for his food and the bible says he shouldn't eat food should be a means of motivating us by the way beyond self-preservation the only other drive that's stronger than that is the sex drive and self-preservation includes food and i grant you if you get hungry enough you'll eat anything you will but we don't really have that problem today, do we? Because we can make a decision whether we really want to work or not because if someone will give us five or ten bucks instead of that, then we'll just stand on the street and beg and not work. So there are no free meals, another way of saying that. The fourth is this, not only fellowship, fellowship, food, but now factions. There's a problem whenever you have idle people in your church. You don't want a lot of people standing around doing nothing because if they're not doing anything, then they are a devil's workshop and there, there can be all kinds of problems that come from that. Look at verse 11. For we hear, Paul says, that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner or are idle, not at all working, but they're busybodies. They're busybodies. They're not willing to work at all, but they're, they're busybodies. This is actually an, a play on words that the apostle Paul uses here it could be translated working not working at all but are working around and the word translated busybody in the text is the Greek word ergodzomenos 
And the word ergodzo minos, the word ergodzo is a word to work. You, work the, you put the word peri in front of it, like this one has, and it means to work around. And what he's saying is this, not that they're going from place to place to work, like they're working around here, they're working around there. That's not the idea. The idea is that they're literally working around work. They're trying to get out of work. So they're working to make sure they stay out of work. That's their work. They're the kind of person that shows up to the job that the man's been doing for 40 or 50 years. He knows how to do it. And then the young guy shows up and he's going to reinvent everything. And so he figures out all the different ways to do it better. And so by the day, when the day's over, no work's been done by him because all he can do is think about how to do it better. He works around working. And there are people who will do that. They will actually get themselves involved in trying to look at how other people can do their jobs better. And their concern is more than them working, their concern is, is that that guy does his job better. I grant you, being in the ministry, I know exactly what that's like. And you know that too in your workplace. There's probably someone at your workplace that will be a busybody and they'll kind of say, you know what, you can do this better if you do that. And they're one of the lazy people that don't want to give themselves wholeheartedly to it. The word also has in its mind to meddle or to go beyond the boundaries or to stick your nose in somebody else's business. Busybody. I thought another translation or actually a definition of another lexicon, the Greek lexicon of the New Testament in semantic domains, it had a very interesting point on this word. It said in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, in some languages, one may speak of a busybody as one who puts his spoon in someone else's cup. Get your spoon out of my cup and get your nose out of my business, right? We all know them. They're around the busybodies. They haven't anything to do but to run your life. And they are an irritant, and they can cause disunity and division in a church. And that's what Paul is concerned about. You remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verse 11, he said this, that you should aspire to lead a quiet life, and here's the word, to mind your own business and to work with your hands as he commanded them. Peter says it like this in chapter 4, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. See, the point is, if you're dedicated to the job that you have and you do it well, and then you come home and you're dedicated as a husband and a father to your family and you do that well, you don't have time to be sticking your nose in other people's business. You need to worry about making sure that your job is done well to the glory of God. That's the point. These people were not willing to do that. They were idle. They had a lot of time on their hands. Have you noticed, especially in our culture, how many young men there are that don't work? They don't work. There's a serious deficit out there of men who are committed to work and committed to make a job and do it well. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in our own church who have their own um, jobs that they run, they have businesses that they run, and they tell me over and over again, it is so hard to find dependable people who will just show up. Just show up. So this is a major, major problem, and many of these are even confessing and professing believers. Verse 12 says, and those who are such that don't, work and are idle and are busybodies. He says, command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ 
that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. In other words, get busy, stop being idle, go to work, and mind your own business. And the last couple of points are these, the fallout. We had the fellowship, the fellowship, the food, the factions, and now the fallout. The fallout can happen. In other words, as you kind of get distressed and burn out with the constant desire of someone to get something free from you or the freeloaders or the bums that want to take advantage of you and they're not willing to work, sometimes you can get discouraged and full of despair and you're just saying, you know, why even do anything? Why even try to help? You can't help anybody because they're just trying to take advantage of you. So in verse 13 he says, and, but as for you, brethren, don't grow weary in doing good. That's the context, that's the meaning, that even though there are some out there that take advantage of it and there are idle people and there are people who are living in sin that way, that doesn't mean there aren't legitimate needs that you can actually minister to. There are people who are in real need, real need, and they need to be taken care of. The word translated doing good, kalapeo is a word, it actually it means whimsically good or that which inspires others to rise up and follow after, to be noble, admirable. So we should not grow weary just because we have a bunch of deadbeats trying to take advantage of the system. Just because there's idle people who are unwilling to work doesn't mean that we should not be willing to meet the real needs of those who have real needs. Like it says in Psalm 37, 21, David wrote these words, The righteous is gracious and he gives. All day long he is gracious and he lends. In Psalm 41, 1, it says, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. Proverbs 28, 27, Solomon wrote these words, he who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. In Isaiah 58, 7, God commands, or rather commends, those who divide their bread with the hungry and bring their homeless poor into their house. So there's a real need to help the needy, the real needy. And don't let the ones who take advantage of the system to discourage you from doing the real work of ministry with those who are in need. Now he says a couple other warnings in verse 14, and if anyone does not obey the word of this epistle, note that person. There's the fallout. Note him. Mark him. Mentally mark him. There's someone that you need to avoid, not to have company with, don't eat with him, so it says that he may be ashamed. Now this is something we don't hear a lot of today, do we? The word shame. Shame is a means that God uses to bring you to repentance. And the word shame comes from a Greek word. It's a compound word that has the idea of actually folding in on oneself. You're so ashamed that you're unwilling to look up and to look out because of what you've done. That's the idea. You kind of fold up. And <laughs> I think a lot of the problem today is that nobody has shame. I mean, you can sin and sin all the more and be idle and lazy and not work and have literally no shame it used to be something that was respectable for a man to be a one a man who worked and provided for his family that was essential very important that's not the way it is now and so more today are taking advantage of that but he says you are not to even eat with that person you're not to have company with that person. You're not to mix it up as the word to have company or to keep company so that he would be ashamed. That's part of the discipline process. 
I mean, here's a believer who's literally living in sin of idleness and not willing to work, and so he's reached the, stir, the third level of church discipline, and now the church is no longer allowed to go and to eat with him because he's living in unrepentant sin. And then one last point that needs to be reminded to all of us is that this is considered to be a brother in the church, and that brings us to our last incentive is family. The church is your family. The church is your family. And you should want to work and not be idle and not be lazy so that you can participate in the family of God. So he says in verse 15, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Don't look at him as someone to hate or to despise or to reject, but pray for him, love him, call him to repentance. Admonish him is the Greek word we get our word nuthetic counseling from. That means to come alongside of and inform the mind. The word noose is involved in that word nuthetic. It means to teach the mind, to appeal to the mind, to use positive pressure of logic and truth. In other words, press upon his conscience, press upon his mind, the truth of the word of God, his responsibility before God to work and to be responsible and to do it well. And to call him back to his own responsibility. I think all of us understand the importance of that. We understand the truth of it in Scripture. And there are many, many examples in church history that I can think of that show to us what a biblical work ethic is. There are mountains of men and women who have shown to us what it is to be careful with the time that God has allotted you and to use it wisely for the kingdom of God and for the purpose of his glory. One that I often think of and am reminded of is Jonathan Edwards. In a very early age, at 18 and 19, he was writing his resolutions. They are profound in and of themselves that a young man at that age could write such profound truth and requirements of himself. They were not necessarily intended to go out publicly. They were for himself so that he could resolve to make sure that he lived as godly a life as possible and as committed to Christ as possible. One of the themes that flows through those resolutions is his commitment to make sure that he never wasted time. He never wasted time. Time is one of those things, once it's gone, you don't get it back. You can't go back and recapture it. It's gone. What we did this morning is over with. It's never to return. How we occupied our time last week is gone and over with. But you can change what's coming tomorrow. You can change what happens tonight. You can change what the future is and you can give yourself over to diligence and working and not being idle and making sure you give every single moment to the Lord and for his glory. Jonathan Edwards was a man who was noted primarily for his preaching. Most people know his name because of the preaching of the Great Awakening. He preached the sermon that so so many are familiar with, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But behind that preaching and behind that work of ministry and the revivals of that time was a man of discipline. Edwards would rise early between 4 and 5 in the morning and spend 13 hours on average in his study each day. That was not the only thing he did. In fact, he said in one of the earliest entries into his diary in January 1728, he says, I think that Christ recommended rising early in the morning by his rising from the grave very early. He was constantly careful to maintain his life of discipline because he wanted to be a type of Christ to the world around him and to his family. He began his day with private prayers, followed them with family prayers, 
by candlelight in the wintertime. Each meal was accompanied by a devotion, and at the end of each day, Sarah would join him in the study for more prayers. Jonathan also kept time for his own private prayer time that no one would know about because he did not want anyone of the man of men to know, like Jesus commanded to pray in secret. He would also add to those days of discipline and work and study, secret days of fasting and additional prayers. One of the biographers of him observed that if one was looking for a prototype of a work ethic of the colonial America, that, that we should always look to Edwards. Edwards believed that his work was worship. And that's true. All that he did daily, day in and day out, morning to evening, was done for the worship of God and the glory of God. He had huge amounts of his time dedicated to knowing and understanding God and reading his word, careful preparation for lengthy sermons that he did and were engaged in, enormous amounts of time engaged in Bible study and biblical studies of theology. Along with that, he wrote numerous major notebooks of tiny writing. He was considered the leading minister of the revivals of that time. He authored a number of very significant works, including books on revivalism, theology, missions, and philosophy. One that I even talked about this morning was the one that he wrote on the freedom of the will, probably the best book ever written in the history of the world on the freedom of the will by Jonathan Edwards, and R.C. Sproul agrees. Whenever his life was concluded, he had written 72 volumes. And he didn't have a computer. He wrote with a feather and an inkwell. Can you imagine? You ask, how does a man study 13 hours a day, write 72 volumes, pray that many times throughout the day, take care of the necessary items of his home when they didn't have supermarkets and, you know, places to go get your food already prepared? And then on top of that, meet the needs of his children and his family. Some would ask, how in the world did Edwards do it? And he would go back time and time to this issue, time management. Time management. Edwards was very, very particular about his time. As I told you, even as an early 19-year-old young man, he was resolved to make sure that he spent every moment of time in a profitable way as much as possible. In one of his entries in his diary in 1723, he wrote this, Sabbath day, January 6th, at night, much concerned about the improvement of precious time, intend to live in continual mortification without ceasing, and even to weary myself thereby as long as I am in this world, and never to expect or desire any worldly ease or pleasure. Later, in May 11th, he wrote in his diary, Saturday night, I have been to blame. The month is past. It is not laying, I, and, and not laying violence enough to my own inclination to force myself to be better improvement of time. Edwards was one of those that had no more day in his day than you and I do, and he had less life than most of us have. Yet he was able to accomplish so much in the short time period he had. He had three principles he lived by. He repeated over and over to himself to remind himself of the necessity of redeeming every moment, every minute, every time. He believed in the shortness of life, the certainty of death, and the length of eternity. 
those three things he would remind himself of all the time, the shortness of life, the certainty of death, and the length of eternity. And you see, all that we do here needs to be understood in the eternal perspective. And just in case you need the reminder, eternity is a very long time. And what we do now, every single moment counts for eternity. What are you doing with your time? How much idle time? You know, all of us need to examine that. How much time do we spend sitting idle, doing nothing, when we could be doing something for the kingdom? How much time do we spend wasting whenever we stand before the Lord? Will we know the word of God more, or will we know our favorite TV program more? Good questions, right? Let's pray together as we close today and get ready and prepared for the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Thank you for the admonition. Thank you for the commandment of Scripture to redeem the time. The time is short. Lord God, I pray that you would help all of us here to be Christians who honor you in all that we do every moment, every day, from the waking hour to the evening whenever we go to sleep. Lord, I pray that you would use us mightily for your kingdom. Help us to be disciplined in our life, guarding every moment for you and for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Charles. Amen. Well, I'm ready to get to work. How about you? Like I heard a preacher say one time, usually after everything is said and done, there's usually more said than done. But I pray we will most assuredly take that message on the sin of idleness to heart. And uh, thank you so much for teaching us the Word of God. Well, as we continue in our worship,